Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr, welcoming you to another Salon exclusive where we tell you about the books that we are most excited about. Now, many, many moons ago, you may even have been there when we were enjoying our free pizza at Shortage House. Remember those days when the Salon just started? One of the books that we launched was Craig Taylor's very first book, Londoners, a history of the lives of Londoners of all kinds of people from all walks of life that Craig gathered by wandering the city streets, speaking to random folk, and basically building up this beautiful tapestry of voices that made London what it was. Well, that book did very well. Craig then moved to the US and he's done the same thing for New York. And his new book is unsurprisingly called New Yorkers. And it brings to life the vibrancy of the streets of that city. Reading it really does take you there. It's the best and safest form of transport in the world right now. So I urge you to pick up a copy. And here is Craig right now, our humble guide to New York. Hi, my name is Craig Taylor and I'm very pleased to be uh, reading an excerpt for listeners um, of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time. I'm a big fan of the Literary Salon. I've appeared a few times in person, but the podcast right now is the next best thing. My reading is taken from the introduction to the book, so you'll get a sense of the project itself. I spent years and years in New York interviewing people in all five boroughs about their lives and about their view of New York City, where it had been, where it was going, and how they survived there. I came away with interviews of about 200 New Yorkers, and the book is made up of 75 of those interviews, from elevator repairmen to a lice consultant, to a cop, to a protester, lawyer, bodega employee. The list, as you can imagine, goes on and on. So here's a reading from the book. Some 75 New Yorkers appear in the book. I was surprised by how many of them told me they could teach me something. Sometimes the lesson was practical. How to recycle cans. How to steal a car. How to walk the crowded sidewalks without bumping into anyone. But often it was something profound. How to be compassionate. How to live artfully. How to live an uncompromising life. The advice may have been particular to this city, but a New York life lived well was an accomplishment like no other. Many of them told me I'd missed the real New York by a couple years, or by a decade, or by several decades. New York was better before, they'd say, or you should have known Avenue C when it was... and he'd waggle his hand, or you should have known Jackson Heights when it was... and he'd give the thumbs up. This is good one woman said and gestured to the noodles spread on her plate, but flushing isn't what flushing was. The place with the good pupusas in the Bronx? Of course it was gone by the time I arrived. It's always gone. It's just a playground for the rich. 
Nearly everyone I spoke to said something similar, like a forlorn chorus resounding across the burrows, as if a nurse in Inwood and an old Irish man in the Rockaways made a pact to speak the same phrase with the same amount of venom. It's just a playground for the rich. Until you take the private elevator and step into the scented apartment and the well-moisturized man says, you know, it's not even that great a playground for us these days. The New Yorkers I spoke to thought their city was actually slipping. It was happening within their lifespans. They were witnessing deforestation of their shops, the killing off of diverse species. One mentioned air people, those you used to see walking the streets of Manhattan, whose presence made you think, what do they live on, air? Some people needed to expunge their personal list of what was gone, to get it out there and acknowledged, to say the names of the missing and the dead out of reverence and respect. It was instructional. It was about status, too. You will never know this city like I know it, never love it like I love it, never have seen and lived through these spaces, like flowers that dazzled and were gone. I knew this place before it was all nail salons. That was repeated a couple times to show me what was what. Change cut. Change reshaped. Change pushed people farther out. This stop, one guy in Forest Hills said, is where you get on the E train at 5 a.m. and all the guys working in kitchens in Midtown are bundled up and sleeping. And then I was told that change was the only continuing attribute. Don't listen to them. Part of loving New York is just mourning the hell out of it. The mourning is the love. In this way, they were engaging in an age-old trait of the true New Yorker, a heartfelt mix of mourning and celebration. As Colson Whitehead has written, no matter how long you have been here, you are a New Yorker the first time you say, that used to be Muncie's. Or that used to be the TikTok lounge. That before the internet cafe plugged itself in, you got your shoes resold in the mom-and-pop operation that used to be there. You are a New Yorker when what was there before is more real and solid than what is here now. That internet cafe he mentioned, it's now a nail salon. But the people I talked to were also full of vigor, gall, and drive. New Yorkers were often defined by their desire. I'm going to get it, or at least I'm going to try. It was a place so powerful I saw a man fresh from prison upstate asking for the city's forgiveness. Let me back in, New York. Let me return to who I was. Let me experience more of you again. For a while I lived near Grand Street, close enough to the Williamsburg Bridge to hear its oceanic rush. I often ran into the rabbi who lived on the second floor and his kids who rolled their tzitzit in their fingers as the slowest elevator in New York rose. They pressed their faces up against the window when I walked toward the front door. In the autumn one year, my father visited from Canada. One afternoon, my downstairs neighbor negotiated her walker into the elevator just as my father and I were about to ascend to the ninth floor. She looked him over inquired about his health, where he was from, what he did before he retired. When the elevator hit the fourth floor, she said, I've had the nicest time talking with you. Would you mind if I carried on up to the ninth? She did. She stared at him. 
and one day the next week, while I was retrieving mail from my mailbox, I heard the approach of her walker and the clink of the segments of her long necklace. Craig, she said, I had the most wonderful time speaking to your father the other day. Now tell me, is he single? It seemed fitting that a city that always had more to offer seemed so often to leave its people hungry for more. New York seemed to work its residents hard, to mold their bodies, their decisions, their careers. I saw the evidence of the force in the marks it left, beating some with a poverty-hating mercilessness that shouldn't have existed in the U.S., transforming some into imperious figures. Some felt the ghosts of an older city press against them. I met people who wanted those ghosts, who courted those ghosts, who loved the idea of a city not only their own, but inherited and pulsing with the past. I kept running into people who were acutely aware of their role in propping up the city, adding to a now that had no choice but to be polyphonic and rich, adding to the history, leaving a mark. One man ran, ran a fabrication company in Long Island City and worked with a library of all the different stones of the city. I saw that library. It stretched across the wall, brownstones and greys and dusty whites, and when I was up on the eighth floor of a building site on the Upper East Side with him, looking past the flapping tarps onto the streets below, he told me about a cornice piece he'd once replaced. The terracotta at the time of installation had been soft, and when he removed the piece, he saw nestled in the corner all the thumbprints of those who first installed it. The ridges of their fingerprints were still legible. He thought, for a moment, about all the fingers that had left those prints. Then he took the cornice away, measured its length, and added the new piece. You worked with the stuff of the New York you got. You worked with the materials of your present. And then you left, or you died, or you moved to Florida, or your visa ran out. You worked with the electrics, or the sewage, or on Broadway, or with New York's dog population, or you worked to ensure its elevators ran smoothly, or you worked in the courtrooms with the city's elderly. You opened its doors. You pressed hard. You left an impression. In the end, though I thought I could simply interview people to get a sense of what New York is like now, it was, of course, more complicated than that. It wasn't easy to turn off the encounter when I turned off my recorder. It wasn't easy to stop caring. And unlike London, people didn't quickly let go. If I was taking something from them, that was the implication. They were going to ask for something in return. One year I ate Christmas dinner with Elliot Carter, a man who'd grown up in Brownsville, had been homeless and now made a living, a sort of living anyway, by recycling. I'd gotten to know Elliot well, and for years we'd met up for Cubanos on Avenue C. Sometimes we'd go return cans at a Duane Reed near 14th Street, or I'd eat lunch with him up in the Bronx. Once during my father's visit, Elliot had dropped off ribs he made with his mother's recipe. I was around to see him hard at work. He was around when I was packing up to leave the city. Like the city itself, there was always more to Elliot. He was inexhaustible. He was the complete New Yorker. He was always leaning back to say, the thing about New York is... 
And I got the sense that we could go on for another three years, another decade, eating Cubanos, looking out at the sidewalk, spearing plantain slices, and he'd dredge something up from within, from within him. The thing about New York is... You are a part of this too, he said to me once. You are a part of this thing now. Not an important part, I said. He waved me away. You're in this city now too. You're a voice. We were walking toward the bodega near my apartment that was kept under eternal scaffolding with a clamped car marooned out front. Two elderly men were propped against the car in their sweaty Yankees jerseys. I told Elliot I was leaving New York. My visa was running out. I left, but Elliot was still in it. There would always be more cans, certainly more pain, more hassle, more fear from the virus, more crowds, more uncertainty. But sometimes he conveyed to me what he knew was more transcendence, the look of the Bronx in the morning, Battery Park at twilight. You just kept going. I left a lot of stuff behind. Elliot took a rice cooker off my hands. Now I text him when I want to know the temperature of the city and how that old machine is doing. Still cooking, Elliot says. Still cooking. What an incredible reading voice Craig has and how totally transporting that text is. I nearly forgot that I was still in Brighton. Whether you're a tourist or a lifelong resident of the Big Apple itself, Craig's oral history and sharp eye reveals the spirit of the city like no other. And what a time the city has been through. What a moment he has captured in its history. New Yorkers is published by John Murray and available now in all good bookshops. Get your hands on a copy online or through our shop at bookshop.org through the link provided. Thanks for listening and I'll see you again soon.